0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Vanda Kreft about her new book about the life and career of the movie mogul William Fox, entitled The Man Who Made the Movies, The Meteoric Rise and Tragic Fall of William Fox. Vanda, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Mark.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm talking with Vanda Kreft about her new book about the life and career of the movie mogul William Fox, entitled The Man Who Made the Movies, The Meteoric Rise and Tragic Fall of William Fox. Vanda, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Mark. Thank you very much for having me on the show.
0: You're welcome. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself.
1: Sure. Sure. I am a former magazine and newspaper uh, journalist working mostly on the entertainment industry. So I have many years of dealing with Hollywood and celebrities. And then I kind of burned out on that and decided, why don't I go to long form? Why don't I write a book? And so that's what led me into the William Fox story.
0: What drew you to Fox in particular as a subject and what led you to invest what is – as is evident when reading the book, a considerable amount of time and and and, and labor to to make it pa- to make it happen.
1: Yes, that's a great question. Um, while I was a writing for magazines, I became friends with Angela Fox Dunn, who was William Fox's niece. She was the daughter of his youngest sister, and she was just a fascinating character. And she was full of all kinds of stories about that. About the early years of Hollywood, and also she had known Fox personally, and she was the last person alive who knew him well, and she was a wonderful storyteller, too, and one of the things that was interesting was when I read his quotes, I could hear her voice, so I I could tell that she was really profoundly affected by him, and it was just a fascinating story, and I love to hear her stories. And for a long time, I just assumed, well, he's a major, major figure in Hollywood history. Of course, someone has written his biography. And then when I I got a little burnt out on journalism, and I decided to go to graduate school and get a master's in communication from the University of Pennsylvania. And while I was writing my thesis, I realized, you know, I really like doing in-depth research and that is another factor that led me to doing a book and then I thought well what do I have in my hand what subjects do I have in my hand and the first one that came to mind was William Fox and I thought let me see if anybody has actually done him and lo and behold no one had so I kind of raised my hand and said I'll do it Uh, in terms of the other part of your question why did I invest so much time uh, because I found the story really fascinating from start to finish. And I put in more than 10 years' worth of research into this. But I have to say, I, it never became boring or burdensome. Because there was always something, some new aspect of the story that I was discovering that really challenged a lot of my going into going into the project. And also, I just really liked him. I found that he was, contrary to many of the stereotypes, a really decent person who was not out primarily for self-glorification or to make a big pile of money. He really loved the movies, and he really and truly, in my opinion, wanted to make a significant contribution to American culture, American popular culture in particular, and more broadly, just to the quality of life, and I I found that just rather unusual and very compelling.
0: He he really does seem mm -hmm. to be an outlier in, in comparison to a lot of his contemporaries, people like, say, Louis Mayer and Samuel Goldwyn, who have these reputations that we know about today, and one of the things I thought was interesting was how you trace that back to his upbringing, in particular his mother. I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit upon the influence that his parents had upon him and uh, how they especially uh, determined a lot about his childhood.
1: Yes, I think both parents in very different ways were a a profound influence on Fox's character. Uh, First with the mother. Mother, he adored mother, and mother really was according to his accounts, a, a saintly figure. She completely believed in him. I mean, these were people who were living in abject poverty. The family came over from Hungary in 1879. Fox was only nine months old then. He was the eldest child. And, you know, true to the stereotype, they went off to live in Lower East Side tenements and in, in really horrible, horrible conditions. Uh, Father, I think, really lost hope. I think he came to America with bright ambitions, and then he confronted the reality, and he just didn't fit in anywhere. He couldn't make a go of anything that he tried, and father became a distant figure and rather unreliable as a provider. So it was really mother who held the family together and who took in, you know, work sewing into the into their apartment so that, you know, they could have enough to eat and just, you know, and, and pay the rent while father was, you know, sort of sitting off in cafes reminiscing. And so Mother instilled in her eldest son, Fox, this confidence in himself and I think a confidence in America that if you work hard and you really apply yourself, that you can go to the top. And it was her love for him, I think, that that really strengthened him and really pushed him, propelled him through many of the very tough early challenges. Um so so that i think was the source of his a lot of his ambition and his vision and his strengths whereas on the other side father's distance and what came across as disinterest in the family made fox i think re- rather angry, and also steal that ambition in a different way, in the sense that he was determined not to be like his father, and he was going to be the responsible provider, and I think that really transferred over into the way that he ran Fox Film, which is that he saw it as a kind of a family on its on its own, and he, as the father figure, had a responsibility to keep it going profitably, to keep everybody secure in their jobs, and able to give the best that they had to to the company, so both parents, I think, were really tremendously influential in his character and in the way that he handled himself going through the motion picture industry.
0: Uh- what you describe is uh a childhood of someone who was not in the entertainment industry. He did he wasn't in vaudeville, uh but you do mention that he did do some performing on the side as part of this uh childhood uh uh existence of of, of going out and earning money on his own. He did not have an extensive education, he did not uh you know, go to college and 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 uh, as as you know, was you know. Uh, uncommon during the time anyway, but that early on he mm-hmm. was he was doing that, but it was just a sideline to his other work. How, how is it that that yes. you know, how did he start out in, in, in work in general and how did he transition into uh, the entertainment industry?
1: Yes, well, you mentioned not having a college education in fact, he only had a third grade education, which is really pretty astonishing when you consider how sophisticated he was later on in his in, in the way that he handled his business career but he had because father was Financially irresponsible, Fox had to drop out of school and go to work in the garment industry, one of those typical sweatshops and it It was a you know a, a grueling life, and I think he needed just you know some sort of escape, some sort of lightness and and that's what entertainment offered to him. It was a relief from this very um oppressive what otherwise was really an uh, oppressive conditions of life. Uh, his mother was a wonderful storyteller, according to him, and so I think that was again another influence of mother was that she connected him with storytelling and an interest in that. And he he was a reader too. He would go to secondhand book stalls and you know furtively. Pull you know, pull out the books, and start reading them, um but yes, he did, as a teenager, he did have something of a performing career. He was part of a comedy act which he they called the Schmaltz brothers, and according to Fox, they were really pretty terrible, <laughs> but I don't think they were that terrible because there are accounts that they played you know some halfway decent places, and they got. You, fairly regular bookings, but I don't think it was a terribly satisfying experience for Fox, and I don't think that he excelled. And that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to be at the top of whatever game he was in. And so, so yes, he does have those early roots in performing, and I think that also helped him later on in his career in that he understood the performer's frame of mind and then he could connect to them. And if he needed something more out of an actor than he was getting, he had ideas about how to get that.
0: So how does he go from his work in the garment industry to becoming an exhibitor of films at the turn of the century?
1: Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, he started, he moved up through the garment industry and he started his own company. It was a cloth shrinking company and then in but but he was looking for something else because as i mentioned he always wanted to be at the top of something. He wanted to be a leader of industry and he wasn't going to be that in the garment industry. It was already built. It was already well established. I don't think there was the sort of room to maneuver that he wanted, maneuver to the top. So there he is walking, you know, through New, through the streets of New York and he sees um, a, a penny arcade and uh, the Automatic Vaudeville Company, and he goes in there, and that gets him into the idea of going into the into the entertainment industry. But by his own account, he didn't see that as his primary occupation. It was just going to be some, uh, an extra business that he could do on the side that would earn him some money. Well, he bought his own small place, in, uh, or he rented it in Brooklyn, and he put in some of these machines, these gaming machines, and it didn't do very well. And then a, uh, you know, somebody came along, or you know, he he decided why didn't he? His fix for it was he was going to sh- start showing motion pictures, and he put them in on the second floor of this building, and that's what changed everything. Then every then the crowds started coming. And that was, then I think he realized this will be the direction for his life. You know, this was something that he had an instinct for and where the field was really wide open. So that was the start of his exhibition career. And from there, every, all the money that he made, he just reinvested it in buying more and more properties
0: i wonder if you could explain a bit what films were like back then and what the film industry was like because you make it clear in your book that a lot of the circumstances that he encounters are what led him to go from exhibition to production so mm-hmm. if you could if you could perhaps set the stage for us by explaining the kinds of films that he was showing early in his career what the sort of the, this very infant film industry was like and what it was that ultimately led him to decide that it wasn't enough simply to own theaters and show films, but it was also important to uh, have to make them as well.
1: Yes. Okay. Yeah. And that brings in really sort of the whole the whole backdrop to his activity in the beginning. And we're talking about the early 1900s here. We don't have what the, the feature film as you know we we know and love it today. What you had we really in the early years were. Just what were sometimes called, I think, actualities, where people would take a camera out and just, you know, sort of film, here's your hometown. um, Or they would be just very short, uh, you know, couple of minutes stories. Um, But mostly at that point, the appeal was just simply these are pictures that move. Wow. You know, so it's a technical novelty that brings people in and generally the show you'd have three of these shows and they'd last maybe half an hour and people would drop in in the middle of them you didn't have you know a set show time a beginning and an end and the, the audience clears out and another one comes in you would often have people just you know say mothers with children who are tired and want to sit down so they go into the theater and they watch the movie and um, in the background, though, of that industry, you have there's a lot of fighting going on over who's going to control this industry, and that brings in Thomas Edison and the Motion Picture Patents Company. Edison basically believed that this was his industry, why he had invented the motion picture camera and projector a claim subject to much dispute, but that's what he believed. He patented these devices, and given that all his hard work had gone into this, if anybody was going to make money, it really should be him, or he should be the primary person. So he and his colleagues were trying to control that, and they ended up actually having pretty much of a stranglehold on production in, the, uh like around... 1908. I believe that's when the Motion Picture Patents Company formed. There had been a predecessor to that, but that's the point at which it really becomes starts to become very powerful. And they're taking over production. In order to make a movie in the United States, you had to be licensed by the Patents Company because you were using their equipment. And from there, they started to move into distribution. And that is the companies that are the middlemen between the producers of films and the theater owners, the exhibitors. And basically, the goal was that the patents company wanted to take over all aspects of the motion picture industry the three main branches production, distribution, and exhibition. And so, Fox. I don't think he really had in the beginning. I think he he was just happy being an exhibitor and then happy being a distributor. I don't think he had this sort of burning ambition, at least not consciously, of making movies. But as you suggest, it was really he was pushed into it by necessity because what we have in the uh, around... 1911, is that as the patents company takes over the distribution function, they wipe out all the other independent distributors. They had started their own distribution arm, and there were about 120 independent distributors. They either bought them or forced them out of business, and the last man standing was William Vox there in New York with his uh, distributorship, and he didn't want to sell and they told him he had to, and he didn't want to. So he ended up filing a, a civil suit against the patents against the patents company, and then he instigated, he went down to Washington and pushed the Justice Department to file an antitrust lawsuit against the patents company. What he wanted to do was to legally dismantle it. You also had a lot of independents, the main one being Carl Emily, the future head of, universal who were just flouting the laws and saying we don't care we're going to make our own movies and we're going to sell them to theater owners but fox was really more of a law and order man and he he wanted things precise and official and he wanted that organization the patents company to be officially defunct and that's why he pushed in that direction but as he that battle took several years and as you might imagine, the patents company was not happy to be embroiled in this. And so, vindictively, they tried to uh, you know, withhold films from him. Their organization still made what were generally considered the best American films at that point. So, as, a distri- as an exhibitor and as a distributor, Fox had a lot of difficulty getting decent movies. And he had to deal with this. Adver- this angry adversary to try to get them. So he decided, okay, he's going to make his own movies. And that's what that was, I believe, the primary motivating factor for him getting into production, which he did in 1914 with a different company than Fox film.
0: Your description highlights another aspect of Fox that, that comes across in the book, which is that he's very politically savvy. And this goes – you describe this as far back as his time in exhibition. He has this relationship with Big Tim Sullivan, who at the time is the head of Tammany Hall, the democratic organization in the city. And you mentioned this later on in the 1920s when he is uh, dealing with the uh, Justice Department. He is not necessarily always successful, but he always seems to be aware of that that political dimension in – these, this industry, and he usually seems to be able to uh, ad- adapt it to his advantage uh, in, in during these early years,
1: yes, he was very shrewd i mean he he really was i think he really was a genius, you know especially if you consider that he he had only a third grade education, so a lot of this was intuitive, but I think that political savvy is. Probably rooted in that relationship you just mentioned with Big Tim Sullivan, where it, it, Tammany Hall had w- was just so powerful and really had its hands in so many aspects of um, you know money making in New York City, and that he had to become enmeshed with that organization. He partnered with Big Tim to build several. Flashy movie theaters in New York City, and that was really how he was able to move from being a small operator into really the big leagues of exhibition to have a fancy theater you know really ornately decorated property that would that would pull in the middle classes, which was going to be the bulk of the audience so I, I think he developed that early on, and then, as you mentioned, that really carried through to his later career. And in the 20s, he, you know, he maneuvers very shrewdly, but as you say, not always successfully (laughs) through the political apparatus at a higher level. He's working with, you know, there he's dealing with the federal government. Mm -hmm.
0: So he gets into filmmaking starting around 1914. I was wondering Mm -hmm. if you could explain the approach that he brings to making films and what his early productions were like.
1: Yes, that is interesting because he's he's typically portrayed in in uh, film history as making a lot of really low class, lowbrow, sensational movies, and as as if he just plain had bad taste. And I went in with that idea too. That's what I thought he was like. And then lo and behold, I discovered no, that's really not the case at all. And I think. The way that he approached movies and the sorts of stories that he wanted to do was very much rooted in his early experience, you know, the, the seeing the very rough sides of life and what it does to people, the characteristics that it and the sort of behavior that it elicits from people, the experiences that he had on the Lower East Side, and then through his association with Big Tim Sullivan. I think he had um, what, what is, you know, portrayed as melodrama, or, or what's characterized as melodrama today, was actually his experience. And you know, people becoming alcoholics and drug addicts and prostitutes, and families falling apart, and corrupt officials—these were all part of his early experience. So when he started making movies, he. Yeah, he did make, you know, he made movies about these sorts of subjects, and he thought he's portraying life as it really is, as opposed to a sanitized and sort of perfumed version of life. He <coughs> what maybe what people would like to think it's like. He was, you know, more romantic vision. He was determined to show the sorts of struggles that, that real men and women went through. And so he did make these, you know, again, what is probably, you know, what, what comes across as melodrama, but again, you know, were, was true to his vision and his experience in life. He also very often adapted the stories from kind of high-class material, from plays that had been, uh, you know, done uh, in legitimate theaters, from classic novels, from operas, and adapting them to the screen, and he did Shakespeare, and he, you know, he did Romeo and Juliet. He did, uh, you know, now we're going into the the 1910s. Uh, he did Les Miserables. He did A Tale of Two Cities. So it was by no means, you know, this sort of cheap. Junk that he was producing. I mean, there was that element because they had to make a lot of movies in order to, uh, you know, keep up with the pattern of exhibition, which was that movies really wouldn't play more than a couple of days at a time. So you had to be turning them out very regularly. But he he wanted to make high quality productions, mm-hmm. and that was a surprise to me.
0: It was. It's also interesting because he begins getting into film production at the very time that it, the film industry is going from infancy into adolescence because, as you mentioned, he starts his companies in 1914. The year mm-hmm. later, you have D.W. Griffith with Birth of a Nation, in effect, mm-hmm. defining the concept of a movie as we understand it today. Mm-hmm. And so it's a time when people are figuring out, well, what are these stories going to be? What are people going to sit through for an hour and a half, two hours, two and a half hours? And And, and he is... You know he's not just you know focusing upon you know one thing he's doing all sorts of different things. He also tries a lot of experiments that don't succeed, like when he tries to establish a filmmaking studio in jamaica and and,
1: funny experience. Mm-hmm.
0: and but he also he also establishes one of the first true cinema celebrities in theta Barda, and yes. I thought that was a very interesting story as well
1: yes and and that was really almost, I mean, it, it, it was not by design on his part. Again, that was another misconception that I had going in, was that, oh, you know, Fox created Theta um persona. It was a brilliant vision that he had, and he was going to create the first sex symbol, but that's not what happened. Um, because when I went back and really dug into the research, I looked at the early ads, and I had expected the ads to be touting Sita as, you know, an exotic star, and they weren't. She was really a minimal element in the ads, uh, in those first ads before the movie came out, you know, and Initially, when it came, when it when it first did come out, which was in January 1915, the what Fox was touting much more were the roots in a Rudyard Kipling poem, and the male star Edward Jose, who had who was a big theater star at that point, and so uh, I thought, wait a minute, what's going on? Well, it turned out that. I, uh, that, you know, Ceda was un, basically unknown at that point. Her real name was Theta, Theodosia Goodman. The studio did change her name to make her sound more exotic and Middle Eastern, and that was supposed to be her persona. But it, it was a really interesting case because it, it was really, I think, the audience that latched onto her and helped Fox identify what was the source of her appeal and she was this exotic figure and she was just brazen. She was a she was an unapologetic sex symbol. And that's what people really went crazy over. And so what happened was when the movie went out I believe the, the contracts specified the contracts with exhibitors specified that they had to, you know, tout Edward Jose as the star of this, and the theater owners realized, no, that's not what audiences want, and so they started promoting Theta as being in this, and that's what really brought in the money. The movie was a sensation from the beginning. Fox didn't really get it he at that point, so he put Ita in you know some conventional movies, and she didn't do very well, but whenever he put her into a you know one of these sex symbol roles where she seduces men and she tosses them aside and she ruins them. That's what audiences wanted. So I would say his real genius, and I don't think it's to be discounted, is that he listened to the audience. You know, he had a different vision. He thought that she was going to be, you know, he was he could sell her as a great actress with a lot of versatility. And he realized he paid attention to what, act- what audiences wanted to their response, and, he re- and the message came back very clearly, we want her as the vamp. And that's what he what he gave them. And then he really, I, really around the summer of 1915, so it took him, you know, say six months to, to really catch on to this and to realize that that was the direction to go in. And from that point, he poured the effort and focused the publicity campaign on promoting her as a vamp. But it was not some grand design that he went in with initially. It was really a process of, I would say, kind of dialogue between him and the audience and and what do they want. So, so they really participated in her creation as well.
0: I was wondering if another factor was his approach to what matters most in filmmaking. Because as you described... Unlike so many of his counterparts in the other studios at this time, he did not think of it as a star-driven in, uh, industry, but instead one driven by directors. Do you think that might have uh, perhaps delayed his appreciation or, or, or slowed down his ability to kind of cotton on to how important Theta was?
1: Yeah, I think I I think so. Yes, Um, because as you say, he he really valued he valued most the director and the writer. He thought that they were the source, they were the true source of creativity, which is really true. They are creating the stories, and he tended to think of actors as being disposable, dispensable, and, and replaceable, which really was not true in the case of Theda. I mean, she might not have been an actress with tremendous versatility, but what she did, she did extremely well. And he tried to get a couple of substitutes. One was um, Virginia Pearson, and nobody came anywhere near the appeal that she had. So she had some kind of magic there on screen. But yes, he did, unlike his peers, he did not have that focus on the stars. So I think, you know, he was looking in another direction. He was looking at directors and writers. And lo and behold, Theda's example says you kind of need to, it's the stars that are really, or I wouldn't say have more importance than than the director, but are another really really big element in this package and in fact you know theta's movies for a number of years were the steady earners they were they were what brought in money very very dependably to the studio and she really was his flagship star
0: i was wondering if you could elaborate a bit upon his relationship with directors because you feature uh several important directors uh very famous names like uh, Frank Borzage, John Ford, F.W. Murnau. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I-, I was wondering if you explained how his uh, v- how his priorities in terms of or his 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 perception as to what mattered in filmmaking translated into these relationships, or, or, or played into these relationships, and how it led to the films that uh, his company produced in the 1910s and 1920s, which became mm-hmm. some of the most uh, iconic films of the era.
1: Yes. Fox really, um, you know, he he had this tendency to idealize directors, and he did go overboard at times with, not the happiest consequences. But he he really believed that they were the most the single most important figures in filmmaking, and he so there were a number of you know really really great directors that he found fairly early in their career and. What he would tend to do is, if he really, really believed in somebody, he would just let them do what they wanted and give them the money, give them the resources. And so that really goes back to the first uh, big example of that was Herbert Brennan and a movie called A Daughter of the Gods, which was made in 1916. And Fox touted it as the first million-dollar – Hollywood's first million-dollar movie – and it's debatable whether it actually was a million dollars that he put in, but Herbert Brennan, toward the end of his life, said, well, it was at least $800,000, and that was a tremendous amount of money to put into a production in the the mid-teens. But that, and you mentioned Fox trying to start a studio in Jamaica, that was the movie on which he tried to do that, and he really did not... Supervised Brennan very well in Jamaica. And Brennan was begging, please help me, please come down here and help me. And Fox, being in New York, said, no, no, I, I'm too busy here. I trust you. You know what you're doing. And it ended up, unfortunately, the movie is lost, so we can't judge it ourselves. It was quite a sensation at the time, but the editing... And it was very difficult there you know Brennan brought back hundreds of reels of films and a film, and they had to figure out what was the story, where is the story here, what is it, and ultimately, that relationship broke down. That's a pattern that would be repeated later, but in general, you know Fox was really looking for those kind of well, boy wonder, those those brilliant uh, visionaries, and so other names that he, other big names now that he supported were Raúl Walsh, whom he also he had under contract in the in the teens, and offered him you know some fantastic salary that was just astonishing, and Walsh came along and made uh, Carmen with with Fita Barra, and he made it a number of other successful movies, then we move into the 20s. And and this is really where those enduring names, more and more of the enduring names start to come out. Uh, Fox hired from Universal, uh, as he was known then, Jack Ford, but as he became at Fox Film, John Ford, and who was a very, very capable director, even in his early career. But at Universal, he was just making, you know, kind of routine Westerns and Fox gave him his big chance, and that was to direct The Iron Horse in 1924. Um, It it was an epic, it was designed as a movie that Fox was going to uh, use to get back into the top tier of of the film industry. Fox Film had receded for a number of complex financial reasons that really have to do with not having access to the uh, to the big splashy big city theaters. So this, the studio, from being a a for sort of first rank player in the 1910s, came, in the early 1920s, had stepped back to really servicing just more the kind of B theaters and the neighborhood theaters. So, but Fox really wanted to get back into into the top ranks, and the Iron Horse was going to be his movie to do that. And so he gives young John Ford this chance to do it, and Ford acquits himself really beautifully. It's a wonderful film, uh, The Iron Horse, 1924, and it did what Fox had hoped for. It was a, a, you know, big success, and Fox promoted it to the hilt, which helped. But he had in John Ford, I think, really the realization of his hopes for a director he had somebody that who would be careful with money and who would deliver really outstanding results and appeal to a very wide audience so he you know john ford he kept him working very steadily through um through that decade through the 1920s and uh then we also have as you mentioned frank borzeghi who did a just a, a really beautiful romantic trilogy from 1927 through 29, um, beginning with Seventh Heaven, then Street Angel, and then Lucky Star. And all of these star Janet Gaynor and Charles Farrell. And they're just heart tugging romances that I believe are, are still just really eminently watchable today. They're silence there's no dialogue but they're just really really beautiful films and they highlight another major the- theme in fox's approach to filmmaking and again this comes from his own life and that is an exaltation of romantic love that romantic love redeems people from their you know past sins and and past cynicism and it brings out the best in people and Fox himself had, again, you know, remarkable for the film industry. He had only one wife, and he they both they married when they were very young. He was completely faithful to her. There are no rumors of him even flirting with anybody else, and that was he 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 always spoke very highly of his wife Eva, and he credited her as being a major element of his success. So that's where I I think he and Fox and Borzegi really connected on that particular theme. And I think that resonated, what Borzegi delivered, resonated very deeply with Fox's own experience. And so he created an environment where Borzegi could make these films and could really give the best of, of himself. The other big example is, of course, F.W. Murnau. And that kind of rings the bells of the Herbert Brennan experience where Fox had stars in his eyes about this great director because Murnau, of course, was highly esteemed and highly accomplished in his in his native Germany. And Fox brought him over to make, you know, the greatest film that ever had been made. And he gave him carte blanche creatively and financially and the result was Sunrise in 1927, which I think artistically is a brilliant movie, and it certainly has held up, but unfortunately it was an expensive movie, and it was for Fox, a commercial disappointment. So he had... um Murnam went on to make several other movies for Fox Film, but he sort of... You know, that was, again, the case where the director cannot live up to these expectations and kind of falls from grace but but we do have those these great great movies as a result
0: we don't just have the movies though we also have these theaters that speak to just how uh, expansive uh Fox's vision was for the role of his uh, film company in the 1920s you you describe mm-hmm. how it, especially you know w- w- uh with Iron Horse and The Aftermath he undertakes this very uh aggressive expansion that leads to him to become one of the major players as he uh, as he describes mm-hmm. himself uh, it, uh in the book The One Great Independent.
1: Mhm. Yes. He started uh Fox Theaters in 1925 and and yes, you know, it, the theaters that he built or acquired, but many of them were built they, they were stunningly palatial and sadly, tragically, many of them are gone. You know mm-hmm. the, the greatest one or the most ornate one was the San Francisco Fox, which was a I think about a 5 million dollar project and it's just staggering to see pictures of this. You can't imagine that a European palace would have been more ornately decorated, but it ties in with his love for motion pictures and that they should have this sort of a home and that people, that the ordinary person should have the opportunity to go to a place like this and to experience everything that royalty would experience so it, it, you have both, I think, a love of the movies and really a, a very deep affection for the American public. And, I, I, the, and- the contrast,
0: the, the contrast mm-hmm. I was thinking of was that when you were de- uh, describing in the book uh, how much these buildings cost, I was comparing it to how much he was spending on the films. And mm-hmm. nowadays, it, you know, it's it's perhaps a uh, you know it's 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 a very you know different process terms making films. But I mean, nowadays the idea that you would spend more on the theaters. Then, mm-hmm. on these films, gives you a sense as to just how important that aspect of the experience was to William Fox. He was willing to spend three, four or five million dollars on building a building, and mm-hmm. you know whereas films would cost maybe you know eight hundred thousand dollars a million dollars, which is you know uh, a fraction of of what the the venue was
1: yes, yes, well, that was also i think a it it wasn't just Fox's idea, it was a sort of a general, it was a real push in the industry as a whole. And if we, you know, think back to what was life like then, you know, you didn't have television, all you had was radio, and people want to go out and they want to be in a public space and have sort of a shared experience, whereas now, you know, we don't need to do that. But part of, and, and the thinking back then was part of, the appeal of the movie-going experience is the place as well. So that given that movie-making is such an uncertain process and so many things can go wrong or take a different direction or you could misjudge the audience's taste, um, that one way to back that up is to offer people a, a a beautiful, environment in which to see the movie so that you might almost as much go to the theater as you would go to the movie. And if you control the theater, then you put your movie in there and who's to say what the balance is between you know, the theater and the movie in terms of drawing that person in and getting them to pay the money at the box office. So I think that's the rationale for investing those huge amounts of money.
0: Um, you open the book... Uh, in 1929, with uh, with Fox's announcement that he is attempting to acquire MGM, and and for me, I, I I think about that and knowing what MGM would go on to become in the 30s and 40s and 50s, it, it does seem to be a, a point at which it, you know Fox could have uh you know become something you know could have taken things to a whole new level and become the largest studio. And yet, as you describe it, it really in some respects is the beginning of his downfall. I was wondering if you could get a bit into the MGM acquisition attempt and what follows soon upon that?
1: Yes. You know, that's been portrayed as a, a foolhardy move on Fox's part, and I don't think it was exactly that. I think there were some miscalculations involved and also a very big element of just plain bad luck. Um, But yes, Marcus Lowe, the head of Lowe's Incorporated, which was the parent company of MGM, which also included many theaters, many, again, deluxe theaters, um, died in 1927, rather suddenly, rather unexpectedly, and the widow and their sons had inherited a, a very large block of stock, and the family didn't really want to run the company, so one of the big questions was, who's going to get it? Who's, you know, who's going to buy this? And Fox was determined that if, to, Fox was determined to win that contest, because if he could take over Lowe's Incorporated, he would instantly become the most powerful person in the motion picture industry. Now, he did, it was a decision that made sense in the, you know, in late nineteen twenty eight, which is when the negotiations were going on, and early nineteen twenty nine, which is when the purchase actually occurred. Um, he Fox had in mind that he he believed that foreign business for the motion picture industry was going to go down because of the advent of sound. Sound came in uh, really, well, 27, 28 and revolutionizing the industry. And what the studios were afraid of were that, well, why are countries that speak a a different language? Why are they going to buy our films anymore? They're not going to be able to understand them. Whereas silent film was universal. So they were expecting a a significant decrease in their foreign revenue. So... Fox, one of his thoughts was in acquiring Lowe's Incorporated and MGM was that you could achieve, you know, you could lower overhead, you could reduce your expenses, it would just be more efficient economically. And so that made sense. He also, before making the acquisition, went to the Justice Department and got a, you know, pretty close to an okay, you know, we won't. We won't be upset on, ant- on, antitrust, on an antitrust basis about this acquisition. And so it was not... I don't believe it was a really a foolish decision. It was risky. It was chancy. And he had to borrow to buy the family's stock. He, he borrowed short-term $27 million in one-year loans, and he put himself at risk there. Then he... But he... But remember this is 1928 a roaring year for the stock market you know things were going very well in early 1929 nobody can really look nobody looks ahead and sees what's coming in October the stock market crash so uh you know should he have anticipated that you know if that hadn't happened that would have been a very a very different outcome i think um then he he was in a very bad car accident in July 1929, and that was really horrible, horrible timing because, you know, as we know, the stock market crash is, you know, coming up, it's looming, it's getting closer and closer, but Fox was, he was not even able to go to the office for three months, so he was not able to, I think, pay attention to the signs or really, you know, listen to what's going on and to... Uh, prepare against that disaster, and so yes, that purchase of of the stock in Lowe's Incorporated that was crucial to his downfall. That was that was what exposed him to the circumstances that ultimately ensued. But on its own, I don't think it was as foolish as it's been portrayed.
0: It, it does get it to though this aspect of. His business that you uh, talk about, which is the role that finance is playing in all this. You, you don't just simply talk about he's making films, he's buying all these things. You're explaining where the money is coming from. And it, mm-hmm. it, to me, I, I, when I was reading it, I was thinking back to uh, the earlier chapters with Big Tim Sullivan about how mm-hmm. he has these partners that he has to work with. And after Big Tim, he seems to. Be more careful about it, but by the 1920s, when he's undertaking this expansion, he, and he's hardly unique in this respect, gets into bed with a lot of uh, very uh, high-profile figures on Wall Street who... Mm -hmm have everything but strong moral compasses <laughs> and, and, and well said. Mm-hmm. thank you. And he, and how this ends up playing a role in, uh, in terms of his gradual loss of control and, and, and ultimately his, his uh, fall from dominance. I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit upon that relationship and the role that it plays in, in terms of his, uh, the fate of his business.
1: Yes. I, I think you know, the the parallel that you draw with Big Sim Sullivan is important because I think that was really the place where he had to make, you know, compromises that he was not comfortable with and I think that steeled in him this determination, absolute determination to have control of his companies, which he was unique in, in Hollywood in maintaining that into the you know, through the through the nineteen twenties. He had through stock ownership He he controlled, he had complete 100% control of Fox theaters and at Fox film, he had 51% control, which meant that he appointed the board of directors, which meant that he put friends and employees and, you know, colleagues and and relatives on the board of directors and they would do whatever he, he wanted. So he was very much resistant to the Wall Street establishment. He did not see them as you know, certainly not, you know, kind of God, God-like figures, they did control the purse strings, but he basically felt, you know, as a, as a self-made man himself, he, he saw these people as not contributing anything of great substance. I mean, what are they doing? They're not inventing products or services, they're just shuffling money around, and they are profiting by other people's hard work that's the way fox looked at it so he really saw them more as you know to put it in the extreme as as vultures and he recognized they were ne- they were necessary but he was not going to give them a seat at the table if at all possible so whereas other studios were taking bankers onto their boards of directors he he would not do that he wanted to maintain control he was very skeptical about wall street Financiers, but to make this acquisition, he had to deal with them, he had to, you know, take the money, had to get enmeshed with this group of people that he didn't particularly like. And the, the financial aspect is really key because the movie industry runs on money and it's a very unpredictable and uncertain business that consumes vast amounts of money very quickly. So he always always had to keep an eye on the money um in terms of this loath acquisition. Fox wanted to be in charge of that he was but he had to deal with people who wanted control of his company, so I think he he got in too close for his own good with the sort of people that he didn't like and he didn't want to have to be doing business with, and consequently. You know th- that that 27 million dollar loan that he, or the, there were actually two loans. One was 15 million, one was 12 million that he took at, for one year. That exposed him to a lot of risk and manipulation by you know big financial players, and that led to his downfall. If he hadn't acquired, if he hadn't made that purchase, I think he still would have been in control of his companies. He would not have. um, But what happened was that after the stock market crash, these uh, two um, creditors, one of which was AT&T, and the other was a, a banking firm, Halsey Stewart, they moved in, and in a chaotic environment, an environment of national panic, they exploited fears. They threw around a lot of accusations that Fox was dishonest, that he was mismanaging his companies, that he was stealing from them that he was never going to be able to pay back this money. And they basically forced his hand and said, you know, if you don't give up control of your companies, we will ruin them. So it was really... And at that point, both of the companies, Fox Film and Fox Theaters, were at the height of their prosperity. So, you know, but nonetheless, I think the public, which felt that you know, how do we know what to believe at all? Because of the stock market crash, the safest position was not to trust anybody and to believe the worst about everybody.
0: So he loses control of these companies, and, and financially, he's in a very bad state. And you describe th- this fight that he has over his bankruptcy that takes place over years, and ultimately leads uh, to. Uh, him being in prison for a period of time. I was wondering if you could explain what what, what transpired there and and how it, you know, led to this point in his life.
1: Yes. Well, I think it really stems from the April 1930, his sale of his voting shares in his company, which is... The process by which he loses control of of his two companies and he gives them over to a utilities magnate from Chicago who doesn 't know anything about running a movie studio but who is backed by the chase bank and this was you know as, as i mentioned his fox 's adversaries had threatened to ruin the companies unless he handed over control unless he sold control, which he did do for eighteen million dollars, but he felt that Fox felt this was the only way to save these companies, and he loved those companies, really as if they were his children. So he hands them over. If you can just sort of imagine, I guess, handing children over to another family, and you would hope that the other family would take care of them or the other parents would take care of them. Well, in fact, they, the utilities magnate Harley Clark just plunged them into ruin and Fox Theatres went into bankruptcy in 1932, and Fox Film was just decimated, so that in 1935 it had to merge with 20th Century Production Company, which was headed by Daryl Zanuck, didn't have a physical studio property, but had a lot of money. So that's why that merger made sense. But in terms of you know Fox himself, he was just devastated. Um, they... That he knew what he was doing. His successors had no idea. Fox pleaded with them, let me come back. I'll, I'll tell you what to do. I'll tell you how to save these companies. And they said, no, go away. Mind your own business. And so to see your life's work ruined um, by people who don't care about it, who were just really plundering the companies for their money, was devastating to him. And he himself did not go bankrupt. Um, yes, he filed for bankruptcy, but he still had millions of dollars. I think the filing of bankruptcy was really more a, an attempt to express the his emotional or psychological feelings of emptiness and of decimation. And I am ruined, uh, although he certainly wasn't financially. So fraudulently, he filed for bankruptcy. And he had such a jaded view of the American judicial system that in order to get the decisions that he wanted, he bribed a federal judge, a man named uh, J. Warren Davis, who was on the appeals court, so that if Fox got a decision he didn't like in the lower court, he knew it could be fixed at the next level up, and indeed it was. Now, the way that that is... The way that that has been portrayed is, oh, Fox was an evil person. Can you imagine, you know, bribing this august federal judge? Well, in fact, the judge solicited the bribe, and the judge had been corrupt for many years. The FBI was on to him, and they discover this this arrangement with Fox, and so in fact fox is not really the um the the evil character or the you know the morally um bankrupt character that he's has been portrayed as i think there are very understandable reasons why he did what he did and you know, you know, I kind of sympathize with him. He got a really terrible deal in losing those companies. It he, he really wasn't right. He tried to fight it through the courts and he lost. Um, and and then, you know, the, the judicial system was corrupt and J. Warren Davis wasn't the only one. There were many other judges around. So in at that time, it... I don't think we can judge by contemporary standards, by what what it would mean today to bribe a federal judge and what it was like back then. Um, But to his credit, when they were caught, Fox steps forward and confesses. And he says, I want to cleanse my soul. And the government prosecuted the judge. And Fox, at two trials, even though his health was bad, Fox was the star witness. He was trying to do the right thing. So I think that that part of the story is more complex, and I think ultimately more sympathetic to Fox than has previously been portrayed.
0: I think it's a very telling statement about his. Perception of himself and his outlook that even after he gets out of prison, he still has this ambition and belief that he can go back into the film industry, that he can start a new studio and not just a small operation. You you Mm described how he he had outlined this very uh, grandiose plan to basically build from scratch the largest uh, studio in in America and by extension the world. So Mm – and yet, at the same time, as you explained, his final years were not necessarily easy ones. I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit upon that.
1: Yeah, that I found I found to be really sort of a poignant episode in his life. He, you know, he went to prison, served about five months, five months of a one year and a day sentence, um, and then he got out. And so, in the mid forties, he has this brief ambition to as you say you know start another studio it was going to be cooperatively owned you know there were going to be no bankers involved it was really kind of an idealistic vision but he was you know in his later years and he was i think he just was robbed of the optimism and enthusiasm that he'd had at the beginning of his career and it just never got off the ground He'd taken an option on some land, never followed through. As far as I could tell, he never hired anybody. You know, he did rent an office in New York and call people in from the trades for some interviews and the New York Times, but the idea never went anywhere. I think he was, you know, the other factor is he was not in the best of health. He had um, severe diabetes, but I think probably most important, he just didn't have... The optimism and the which would have fueled the sort of the the drive to make that particular dream come true, and so it just faded away it It never went anywhere, but there is something I feel like admirable in that brief flash of ambition it's sort of a longing to want to get back and then a realization of it's really not possible. you know he'd also been away for a very long time, you know. 15 years, a lot had changed and the industry itself really, I think, wanted to move on. It wanted to move on to the next generation and Fox was an old timer and the industry was at that point really discarding the old timers. So he just, it really wasn't possible but he did what he could. He still had a camera company, the Mitchell Camera Company, and which is in Glendale, California at that time and he would go and you know, go around the office and maybe really try to find out what everybody was doing and be involved in that, in that part of the business. So he still loved it. I, I think he just couldn't stay away. Well, we've
0: taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working mm-hmm. on now?
1: Oh, yes. Well, right now I am in the process of really uh, – promoting the book and doing as much as I can to get the word out about it. So I thank you again very much for the opportunity to be here. Uh, I'm also looking around for other book ideas. I would love to do another biography. I'm just not sure who that subject is going to be yet.
0: Well, when that when you do have a subject and you do write that book, I, I do look forward to reading it. Oh, thank uh, you very much. Mm-hmm. Vanda, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I, I hope you have a wonderful day.
1: Oh, thank you very much, Mark. I appreciate it.